Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Still in that turkey days, that's okay. Uh, this morning we're going to be talking about pride. Um, and uh, pride is an interesting thing to preach. It's an interesting thing to be uh, preached to about because um, if we struggle with pride, then we probably won't hear. We probably won't listen. We will listen for other people. We'll sit through messages about pride. And if we're prideful, we'll think, man, I hope such and such is listening. Or I hope such and such is listening. Or man, this person really bothers me because they're this way. I hope they're listening in. And all along, we need to hear as we struggle with pride. And, 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 and so... My desire is that the Lord will work and there's hope because just as we've talked about in 1 Corinthians, we're the temple of God. God's Spirit dwells in us. And so there's hope in the Holy Spirit that He will awaken and convict and bring repentance and shine light into our hearts that we would be humble people who repent of pride and surrender to Christ, that we would depend on Him. And so I want to pray that God would do that this morning, that the Holy Spirit would work in us. Um, that as prideful people, we would hear from God and that we would be changed by Him. And so what I want to ask is that you would pray that too. And just in your hearts, I'll, I'll finish our time praying, but in your hearts, just pray. God, show me where I'm prideful. Reveal pride to me. Where am I in opposition to you? Show me my pride and, and give me the faith to repent because of who you are, because of all that you've done on my behalf. Help me to see pride and humbly repent. So just pray, and then I'll pray. Father, we need your help. I need your help. I am a prideful person preaching against pride. We need your spirit. I pray that you would hear our prayers that we have just prayed to you and that you would answer and that you would awaken our hearts, that you would shine in our hearts, that we would see how great and holy and set apart you are all that we have in Christ, and that we would humbly submit to you. That we would repent of our prideful ways and follow you as your servant. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 6 and go through verse 13 this morning. So if you'd stand and just follow along as I read. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. 
and wood that you did rain so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Go ahead and have a seat. Paul writes in verse 6, he says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. What things is he talking about? What are the things that he says that he's applied to himself? He's talking about the pictures and the analogies that he had referred to in chapters 3 and 4. If you remember in chapter 3, he says, I planted and Apollos watered. Uh, he talks about being builders. He says, we're stewards of God's, the, of the mysteries of God. And these pictures, these analogies, these, these uh, descriptions, Paul says, I've given these things, I've applied them to us so that it would be to your benefit, so that you could learn from them, so that you could grow from them. How? He tells us. So that, so that they, the Corinthians, would learn not to go beyond what is written. Not to go beyond God's word. Not to stretch out from that. Remember, remember what's happening here. Okay, Remember what he's dealing with. He's got people who are saying, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Paul. And they put their identity in these people. And what Paul's saying is, I, I've, I painted this picture for you so that you would see not to go beyond the bounds of Scripture. Don't put your identity in us. Keep your identity in Christ. It's, it's one thing to enjoy and, and even honor your, your teacher, but it's a completely different category to find your identity in them. That's what Paul's saying here. So I've given you these pictures, I've given you these analogies for your benefit so that you will learn not to go beyond what is written. We're not anything. Remember what Paul says in, in chapter 2, we're not anything. God is everything. The Corinthians have become puffed up. He says in the, the verse there that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. They had become puffed up. They had divided over these uh, classes, over the I follow Paul and the I follow Apollos and I follow Cephas. They had divided. There was divisiveness between them. Now, what causes that? Pride. It's being puffed up that, that, that the whole argument is not about Paul and it's not about Cephas and it's not about Apollos and it's certainly not about Christ it's about me it's about themselves it's when we have this prideful mindset that says what I think is right this is right Paul is right and so I follow Paul because really he agrees with me, and so I follow Paul, and anyone not in that group that doesn't agree with me, well, you're outsiders. You're not the you're not the Paul group. You're not you're not followers. You're not true followers of Christ because you're not really following Paul and what he's saying. That's not about Paul. It's not a Paul issue. It's a me issue. I have a pride issue if I'm following and finding my identity in that person or even that thing, as we talked about last week, rather than in Christ. They're prideful. 
They become puffed up. Why? Because they're going beyond what is written in the scriptures. Verse 7, and actually verse 7 and following, Paul spends time revealing that, challenging that, giving us a picture of of what a servant of Christ is, what uh, the Corinthians are living like. And he says in verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive? Who, Who sees anything different in you? What makes you better than anyone else? What makes you different? What sets you apart? That's what Paul's asking. What makes you better than anyone else? Who sees anything different in you? Well, the answer is what? Nothing. You and your group is not any better than anyone else. They thought they were. What do you have that you didn't receive? Even, even, even and we want to think in context. We want to think about what's going on in Corinth. And, and one of the things that they're struggling with is they're thinking. They're inviting in worldly ideas, humanistic thinking into the church. And so they're following people instead of Christ. And so they're struggling with this worldly wisdom, inviting it in, wanting to be like those who are on the outside with their thinking even. And so Paul's saying, what do you have? Even your thinking, even your thinking has been a gift that's given to you and you're using it to deny Christ. You're using it to follow not Christ, but people. What do you have? Your your things that you find your identity. And what do you have that hasn't been given to you? Nothing, right? Nothing. Every single thing that we have, our thinking, the capabilities, God has enabled us to think. I'm not where I'm at because of anything that I've done. The Corinthians aren't where they're at because of anything that they've done. It's all because of Christ. And even their position in Christ is because of Christ. You believe? That's because of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. What do you have? What what position? How are you any different from any? Every single thing that you have, even your place in Christ, is because of Christ. God shine in your heart so that you could see him. And in seeing him, obviously you believed because he opened your eyes to see how glorious he is. That's not you, that's God. And so he says, what do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast? As if you didn't receive it. we're, We're so tempted to act that way, aren't we? As followers of Christ, we're so tempted to to live and think that way and and look at our our possessions, look at our accomplishments and think, look what I've acquired, look what I've done. And what Paul says is, where did you get that from? Where did that come from? From God. If you did nothing to acquire that, then why are you boasting in it? Boast in God. Let your boasting be in God, not in yourself. And then he goes on in verses uh, 8 through 13, and he, he, he begins um, to use this sarcastic back and forth, this contrast, which contrasts the, the arrogant attitude of the Corinthians with the life of a servant of Christ. Now, now when we get into this, um, he's using sarcasm, but not the way that I use sarcasm. My sarcasm is a sinful sarcasm. I, I'm sarcastic often because I want people to like me. 
I want people to laugh at me. I want, I want, it's a, it's a me thing. It's whether I would admit it in the moment or not. It's a sinful thing. I'm elevating me. That's not what Paul's doing. So don't, don't get mixed up when we use the word sarcasm the way that we sinfully use sarcasm. He's painting a picture here. He's displaying, look how ridiculous this is. You claim to be in Christ, but you're living for the world. This is you. This is what a servant of Christ looks like. And that's what he's doing in verses 8 through 13. He says, already you have all you want. The Corinthians thought that they had arrived. Already you have all you want. They had everything that they needed. They had arrived. We, we know that, that that's not true. Ephesians 4 that we keep going back to. We, we continue this process of sanctification, building each other up in love. They thought they were there. You have all you want. Already you have become rich. They thought they had it all. They thought they didn't have any need of help. That's the, that's the definition of pride. Thinking we don't need help. I don't need someone else's help. I don't need someone else to get me to heaven. I don't need someone else to do this for me. I can do it myself. That's pride. They were confident in themselves and in their humanistic thinking. And their worldly wisdom. He says, you've become kings. Without us, you have become kings. We've we've seen in 1 Corinthians already, we see in the New Testament that those who persevere will reign with Christ. The Corinthians thought they had already arrived there. And I love, I love Paul's follow-up to that. Would would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. I, I wish it was true. I wish, I wish that we were there, but we're not there yet. That's what Paul's saying. You, you're, you're acting, you're living like you've already made it. You're already in heaven, that there's no need to persevere. And Paul says, man, I wish it was true. I wish we were there. I wish that we, you did reign because then we would all be reigning. But, but they weren't. They weren't being servants of Christ. They weren't living for Christ. They had already crowned themselves king. Paul says, would that you did reign. That longing in his heart. And in the midst of that, speaking true to them. Goes on in verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels, and to men. Paul wrote this letter from Ephesus. And it's interesting, in, in uh, Acts chapter 19, when he was in Ephesus, you remember the, um, the story of when he's dragged into the theater, put up in front of all these people, this mob is happening, they have to uh, dismiss the mob at some point, they come to their senses, and look, we're going to get a, in trouble because we have this riot going on. But Paul's dragged in there, and, and, and there's fear that Paul is going to be ripped apart by this mob it was believed that Paul wrote this letter shortly after that while he was in Ephesus. And, and, and it's interesting in the midst of this verse, probably fresh on his mind, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. That word spectacle in the Greek is what we get our English word theater from. And so fresh in his mind, he's just experienced, this is what it looks like to be an apostle. This is what it looks like to be a servant of Christ. Remember, he said at the beginning of chapter 4, think of us this way, see us as servants of Christ. And now he's painting this picture for them. 
And and it should be humbling for the Corinthians, and it should be humbling for us as he now goes through and says, look, this is what a servant of Christ looks like. We're servants of Christ. Now look look at us. Look at at how we live, and look look at the comparison between your thinking with humanistic mindset and how we're living. Become a spectacle. For us, as servants of Christ, we're dragged. We're dragged before people. We're sentenced to death. We're like men sentenced to death. Because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels, to men. As the world is watching in, as angels are watching in, here we live our lives as servants of Christ and dragged before men as men sentenced to death. A spectacle. He goes on, we're fools, he says, for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are fools, but you are wise. And don't don't miss that that statement. We are fools for Christ's sake. Paul tells us in chapter 1, verse 18, that what? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The reason that they were fools in the eyes of the world is because they were a display of the gospel. They were a picture of the gospel. They were a picture of Christ. They were a picture of what it looks like to follow Christ. They're servants of Christ and they're displaying Christ and displaying the cross. And so the world that looks at the message of the cross as folly looks at them as fools. He says to them, this is what it looks like. Humble, sacrificial, living for Christ, not living for self. We're fools. In this comparison, we're fools, but you are wise. Again, thinking that they have arrived, thinking that they have gained all knowledge, thinking that they were what they weren't. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. That should have worried, that should have concerned the Corinthians. That's what they wanted. I mean, that's what, when we, and when they invited the thinking, the worldly wisdom into the church and thinking like the world, which thinks that the word of the cross is folly, the only desire there is more of self-exaltation. They want to be accepted. They're held in honor. Why? Because the world holds them in honor because they're inviting worldly thinking into the Corinthian church. They're held in honor by the world, Paul's saying, but not by God. God opposes the proud. But we in disrepute, he says. He's giving this picture, this display for them. We're fools, he says. We're fools for Christ's sake as we display the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel to this world who looks at the gospel as folly. We are considered fools. He goes on in verse 11, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. Just think through that. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. Does that mean that every follower of Jesus Christ is, is going to be hungry and thirsty? No, it doesn't. He's not saying that. Does it mean that every follower of Jesus Christ is going to be poorly dressed? That every follower of Jesus Christ is going to be physically buffeted, beaten? He's not saying that. He's saying, look, 
in our context, as we follow Christ and, and are not ashamed of the gospel, as we proclaim him to people who look at it as folly and are angered and embittered by it, this is our life. This is what it means to serve Christ humbly and, and not care what's going to happen to our bodies, not care what's going to happen to us. That, that word homeless is, 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 is the idea of him wandering from, from place to place and not having a fixed residence. That's what Paul did, right? God, God called him. Jesus met him on the road to, um, uh, to Damascus and sends him out to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. So he preaches and he goes from place to place to place to place to place. But it's interesting, it's not just the apostles that had to live that way. I mean, you go to, to Hebrews chapter 10. Starting with verse 32. The writer of Hebrews writes to these uh, people who are, are being persecuted and, and, and being kicked out of their homes and imprisoned and, and encouraging them, persevere, don't give up, don't give up, keep going, Persevere. And he says in verse 32 of chapter 10, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Here's these people who, their friends, they, they hadn't been kicked out of their home yet. Their friends are imprisoned for Christ, and they don't hide. They're not ashamed to go. It says they joyfully go and visit these friends, having compassion on those in prison, and joyfully accepted the fact that their stuff would be plundered. But in the midst of it, knowing that they had a better possession, an abiding one in heaven. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Just a beautiful picture as you go from chapter 10, verse 32, all the way through chapter 11. And I encourage you to continue to read that all through chapter 11, even today or sometime this week. Just this picture of faith. That's what we see in Paul as, he, as he's describing as a servant of Christ. We're hungry and thirsty and poorly dressed and buffeted. We're, we're beaten for Christ. We're homeless. We labor. We work with our own hands. We struggle for Him and for His glory. Now, listen to these, this section here in, in, in chapter 12. When reviled, we bless. When reviled, we bless. We bless when others revile us. Think about what Christ commanded us to do. You go to Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount. Verse 
Verse 39, it says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those, those aren't verses that we, that we evaluate and try to figure out. What, what does he mean by turn the other cheek? Is there something like hidden meaning when he says that? Is there some kind of other thing? that What's he saying? What's cheek? What's cheek referencing? It's cheek. Someone reviles you, you, you bless in return, you turn the other cheek. It's just only with Jesus. Only possible in Christ. Luke chapter 6, verse 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That's what Paul's saying. That's what we do when we're reviled. We bless. The world that says, I don't get mad, I get even, cannot reconcile that. They can't figure that out. They can't, they don't make sense of that. Why would someone, when they're reviled, bless in return? Why? Because Christ did. And because Christ has given us the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, when when we're reviled, we bless in return. He says, when we're persecuted, we endure. Again, in in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. And be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's what Paul's saying. That's what we do. We're obedient to Christ. And so when we're persecuted, we endure. In 1 Peter, the whole letter, you could read the whole letter and and see these same things. But chapter 4, just so beautiful where he starts off and says, Christ suffered in the flesh. Therefore, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In the same chapter, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. When persecuted, Paul says, we endure. The Corinthians were living in a way that they would be accepted acceptable to those around them outside of the church. Paul says we, we, we don't go there. We, we live for Christ. We're servants of Christ and we're persecuted because of it. Now, that's not saying that we go around looking for persecution for its own sake. We don't do that. But we also don't live arrogantly thinking that we're above it. And when it comes, 2 Timothy 3.12 says it will come. When it comes, we endure and we rejoice. How do you do that? How does Paul live like that? How does Paul respond that way? How does he endure when he's persecuted? How does he bless when he's reviled? Only in Christ. Only by the Spirit. As you read through uh, even just chapter 4 of 1 Peter with this Arm yourself with the same way of thinking as Christ who suffered in the flesh. And when you are persecuted, don't be surprised at that, but rejoice insofar as you suffer for Christ's sake. 
so that you will also rejoice at his coming like that. It's mind-blowing, but as you, as you read through that, it makes sense that he also says in that book, always be ready to give an answer for those who ask about the hope that's inside of you. That makes sense. Because he's talking to all these people who are rejoicing in the midst of suffering, who are being ridiculed in their blessing and response. They're, they're being persecuted and they're enduring through it. You, you see people who are living that way and there's a hope inside of them by the Holy Spirit that is intriguing and, and mind-blowing. Why? Because the world doesn't get that. When persecuted, we endure. Verse 13 goes on. When slandered, we entreat. That means we answer with a kind word. When we're slandered, we answer with kindness. That's the opposite of pride. In my pride, when I'm slandered, I want to jab right back. I want to find the person that slandered me. In my pride, I want to find that person and I want to tell them what's right about me. I want to defend myself. I want to to make things right by defending me. Paul says when we're slandered, when we're spoken wrongly of, when, when our name is dragged through the mud, we entreat, we answer with kind words. How does that happen? It doesn't apart from the Holy Spirit. Paul says we're serving Christ. It's all about Christ. We're serving him. And this is, this is how we respond. And he finishes up verse 13. He says we have become and are still like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. The scum of the world. The refuse of all things. Humbling. Humbling. Paul says you think you have it all together. You think you have it all figured out. You think... Uh, who, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you have not received? Live for Christ, serve Christ, whatever, whatever it brings. Don't, don't shift your thinking to this worldly thinking, inviting the worldly thoughts into the church, trying desperately to be accepted by the world. The gospel is an offense to the world. It's folly, it's foolishness to the world. And so are we when we live like Christ. That's what Paul just says of himself. We're fools for Christ. The gospel is foolishness. The Corinthians had become prideful. They were living for people rather than for Christ. Pride is is a dangerous, dangerous thing. We see the danger of it in the, in the church in Corinth. They're, they're divided. We're going to see more of the things that are happening as we go through the rest of chapter 4 into chapter 5 and 6 and on and on. It just, it's a prideful environment. The, the dangers of pride are, number one, if you're prideful, you're blind. It's, it's interesting, the, the comparison between Revelation 3 where, where uh, Jesus, the letters to the seven churches, the, the church to Laodicea, In verse 17, it says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is writing this to a church. 
This sounds very familiar to what is just said that Paul says of Corinth. You, you, uh, you say that you're rich. Jesus says, really, you're blind. When we have this prideful mindset that says, I have it all, I, I'm rich, I've prospered, I don't need anything. That I'm blind, I don't realize that I'm wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus says that to the church. The danger of, of, of just walking in a prideful mindset, not humbling ourselves before God is, we're blind, we're walking blindly thinking that we are something we're not. The second danger of being prideful is that God opposes you. God opposes you. That's one of the, 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 the scariest pictures in the Bible for me, that God would oppose me. That the God of the universe who spoke worlds into existence, who spoke and created the, the stars and the planets and, and everything that's on the just and it came into existence that that God would oppose me. And what, what James says and what First Peter says is God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Isaiah says in Isaiah 66 two, this is the one, God speaking, this is the one whom I, on whom I will look or this is the one whom I will esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble, we're in danger when we're walking in pride. And so what do we do to fight that? What do we do to fight pride in our lives? Three things. Number one, we give glory to God. The the Corinthians were giving glory to man. But if we're to live a humble life and to fight pride in our life, we give life, we give glory to God. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 15 says, Hear and give ear, be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains, and while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. One of the ways we fight for humility, one of the ways we fight pride in our lives is giving glory to God. What do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. Everything you have, your salvation, everything is from God. And so give glory to God, not to yourself. We're so tempted. We're so prone to walk around patting ourselves on the back all the time. It's not about us. It's not from us. We didn't do anything. It's God. And so we ought to glorify God. The second thing we ought to do to fight pride is to admit our need. Admit our need. Pride keeps us from admitting our need. First Peter chapter 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. This is verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that... At the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself re- restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. How? Casting all your anxieties on him. Admit your need. That's what, that's what pride does to us. Is it, it tells us we have no more need. We don't have any need. We don't have any anxieties. We don't have any cares. All of us have anxieties and all of us have cares. And we ought to live as those who are in Christ as people who daily recognize I can't handle my anxieties myself. But Jesus already did. He already handled my anxieties. He already handled my needs. And so I'm called to cast them daily on him. Cast your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And that mindset in me that always wants to say, these are my problems that I have to deal with. I'm going to take care of this. 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 I can do it myself. Is a prideful mindset. Peter says, cast your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And so as we fight for humility, as we fight against pride in our lives, we need to admit we have need. The Corinthians weren't doing that. So Paul says to them, already you have all you want. We, we have a daily need for Christ. Daily. We need him to work in us and through him. We need him to take care of these struggles. We need him to help us with this pride. And thirdly, we need to think about the gospel. If we're going to fight pride think about the gospel remember jesus just think about what he did jesus came and died he took your sin on himself he died for your sins he took god's wrath for your sins he was punished for your sins he took care of your sins You could never take care of your sins. We think that we can sometimes. We think in our pride that we can overcome this. Jesus overcame it. He took care of all of our sins on the cross. He was killed for our sins on the cross. We could never have done that. And so we think about the gospel and think, Jesus did what I could never, ever, ever do. And so I humbly submit to him, knowing that he took care of what I couldn't do. Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived a perfect life and credits us with righteousness. We could never live a perfect life. We could never live a life of righteousness. He did it for us. We needed his help. We needed his righteousness. Without him, we are lost forever. So we think, we think about the gospel. We don't think about the fact that, that, that Jesus just died and now we don't need to think about that. We, I need to think about the gospel every single day. 
today, tomorrow, every single hour. I need to be thinking through the fact that I need Jesus' righteousness. I needed Him to take my sins because I can't overcome those myself and I can't live a righteous life myself. And my pride gets in the way and makes me think, you can do it, Tony. You can live a good enough life. You can, you can do what you need to do to impress God. You can't do it. I could never do it. And you can't do it. And so to fight pride in our lives and to, to fight for humility in our lives, we ought to be thinking about the gospel and remembering Jesus every single hour of every single day. Because we need him still. So what I want to do is, is we're going to do that together. We're going to take communion this morning. I just want us to, to fight for humility in our hearts and as a body together. They're going to come and, and, and pass out the bread and the cup. The band is going to come up and, and play while they do that. Uh, we're going to sing together while they do that. But that we would just think about what Jesus did for us. That we would humbly think about the gospel and what he's already done. That we would surrender to him. And and honestly, that we would think through, where am I opposing God? Where is he opposing me because of my pride in my life? What am I trying to do myself? For some of us, it it may be that that you, you, you... came to Christ at sometime earlier in your life and, and now have bought into this mindset that you can do the rest yourself. You can't. Maybe you've never, ever, ever submitted and trusted Christ for salvation. You cannot make it to heaven on your own. You can't do it. It's only through Christ that we can be saved. And He did everything that we need. He He paid for our sins on the cross. He endured the wrath of God so that we could be forgiven and clean. But before we take the bread and and the cup, I I encourage you to just, as we're singing, that you would think and pray and confess. There's, There's no one in this room that, as we prayed together before the sermon, that God will reveal to us areas of pride. There's no one that can look up from that prayer and say, he said I didn't have any. We're all prideful people. We all struggle with pride. And God opposes that. He opposes the proud. We want to be people who are servants of Christ, willing to live however he's called us to live, enduring whatever he's called us to endure, and responding with joy and and gladness and, and kindness in response to whatever comes. And so as the bread comes and, and the cup comes, just hold it and pray. We're going to take the bread. Jesus said, as you take it, remember my body that was broken for you. And so we humbly think about our need, about Jesus enduring the cross and suffering for our sins. He says, you take the cup, remember my blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. So we humbly remember Christ in that and we worship him in that. If, if you don't know Christ, let me encourage you um, that at this point in the, in the service that you don't, even, you don't even take, that you just pray and consider what Christ did for you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that when we take the bread and the cup, we're, we're aligning ourselves with 
the gospel. We're aligning ourselves, identifying ourselves with the death and resurrection of Jesus. I encourage you to pray and, and, and ask God to help you and think through those things. Well, let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. I pray that you would help us in this time, that we would worship you, that we would honor you, that we would humbly come before you, God. Please help us in our pride, that we would repent, that we would think and remember the body and the blood of Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. And we praise you, Jesus. In Christ's name, we pray all of these things. Amen.